Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The same word, Shebet, refers both to the staff of a shepherd and the tribe. It is the exact same word. The staff of God is the premise, the reference, and the totality, not the community. In the land of scripture, which is not your land, does not speak your language, does not conform to your norms, does not eat your food, and does not care about your values, there is no such thing as a flock, let alone a community. There is a shepherd of flock. In Hebrew, Roetzon, which carries a staff. In Luke chapter 4, when God uses the mouth of Jesus to proffer his grace in Nazareth, the people of his own tribe turn their backs. They do so because they imagine that Jesus belongs to their tribe and is the son of their Joseph. Yet, From the moment Jesus said no to the devil, God put his hand on him to control him by the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But the people from his own tribe were not satisfied because he did not speak by their hand, and it was not by the authority of their staff, under their control, for the benefit of the home team. Truly, truly, I say to you, only a blinking idiot would pick a fight with the Almighty terrifying and terrible God of Scripture over who owns the Lord Jesus Christ and who controls what comes out of his mouth. Don't laugh. People do it all the time. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 verses 20 to 27. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 497 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been emphasizing the criticality of hearing the text Semitically. It is clear to me, Richard, we were chatting about this offline before we started today's program, 
that there is pressure on the one who teaches Scripture not to make the text relevant today. That's silly. It's absolutely ridiculous. Anyone who thinks they can make the text relevant today is just, as my father would say, dreaming of hot cabbages. You are, in fact, an oppressor and a persecutor and an occupier who is taking the text hostage. You are taking the text prisoner, like Alexander the Great, or a colonial Zionist who is holding the land hostage. You are the one who is taking the Native American on the trail of tears when you try to make the text relevant today. I love the example you always give, Richard, of the biblical scholars who were encouraging and cajoling those living in Africa to make the effort to learn the continental Hebrew so that they could render the text for their disciples locally in the colloquial for the sake of the common good. Everyone must make the effort, but to do that, it's not simply a matter of, quote, learning the language. You have to enter into the mentality of the Semitic. Now, for years on this program, you have heard us say, for example, that Capernaum, Kafarnahum, means the village of grace. You cannot figure that out from the Greek, and you can't even understand that simply from looking at the Hebrew. It's not a simple puzzle to unlock. In the case of this particular route, you have to also look at the Aramaic. If you want to learn more about the etymology of this word, you should pick up a copy of Father Paul's Introduction to the New Testament, Volume 1. So things are not as simple as they seem. It takes work, it takes time, it takes study. And it's not as simple as looking at Semitic lexicology. You have to look at the lexicology of these words in the original Semitic within the context of the narrative. I'm going to keep saying this because I can no longer tolerate the occupation of the text by Hellenism. We have to accept the historical reality of occupation, but the word of God was given to set us free under the boot of the oppressor. I cannot tolerate the occupation of the Debarim of the Almighty, to which we have committed our life in his service. I lived in Marrakesh. You have the city of Marrakesh, which is mud houses in very narrow, maze-like roads with openings here and there for marketplaces, gates that are placed in a city wall, and this is the old city. This is the Medina. But then you have the Gilles, which is what the French built. The French came and built a French neighborhood with big paved streets for cars, and they have their shops and their bakeries and their cafes and things like that, which are very French. This is what it means to be a colonial. Go to Colonial Williamsburg, and you can see a nice English town on the shores of the Americas. When you are a colonizer, you do your thing in someone else's land. That's how it works. If you go to Jerusalem in the old city, you have shopkeepers all along the road. 
if you go to the new city, you have shops with a glass window and a glass door. You have to open the door in order to go inside to talk to the shopkeeper because that's how you do it in Europe. When it comes to the biblical text, I am an immigrant, not a colonial. I come in order to learn the ways of this new country that I'm coming to. I learn the language of this new country I'm coming to. I learn the idiom. I learn the cultural perspective. I have to dress like them. I have to talk like them. I have to act like them. Otherwise, I'm clearly a foreigner. I'm clearly not from around here. Now, when it comes to scripture, the only people who are from around here are God and Jesus. <laughs> Everyone else is from somewhere else. Even the children of Israel are from Egypt. I don't know how they learned to speak the language of the wilderness because they were in Egypt for 500 years. When it comes to this text, yes, it can help you to have a phrase book. Here's what you want to say in your language, and here's how to say it in their language. But as long as you're using that phrase book, you're clearly a tourist. You're clearly from not around here. When you can put the phrase book away and just speak to people, not expecting them to learn your language like Americans do, but you learning their language, then you can start to understand what's going on, or even just understanding what's going on around you, let alone beginning that assimilation process. Because culturally, we cannot set up one culture over another in the world. But when it comes to scripture, if you believe that scripture is authoritative or canonical, you do have to assimilate to it. That's how it works. And that includes language. So translations are helpful, just like a phrase book is helpful when you come into a new country. But as soon as you say, I've got a phrase book. What do I need to learn the language for? Eh, you're building a wall between you and the local culture, you and scripture. So be careful when you approach the scripture. Don't approach it as someone who owns it. This is not your book. You're an immigrant. Maybe there's a chance that your children can grow up in this land and actually be native in this land, but you might be preventing even that from happening. You might be creating immigrants out of your own children that cannot assimilate. So then it's up to their children. And this is the challenge that scripture places in front of you. And Richard, to prove your point, the Orthodox know exactly how to force people to enter into Constantine's Byzantium, which means they are imposing cultural Hellenism on the West, whether they sing in English or not or Tsarist Russia on the West, whether they sing in English or not, which means if they're willing to make the effort, they can enter into the Bedouin desert of the Near East and force people to understand the mentality of the Semitic and enter into the world of the biblical text. They can force people to understand the Shebet of God the Father in which the staff not the community, is the tribe in the Roman household of God's Debarim, his news, his gospel in the wilderness. It's unacceptable to people, but it is possible. It will be rejected, but it is doable. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Of course, the words were gracious in the domain of Judaism, in, as you've been insisting, Richard, a mixed setting where there are people of many different types coexisting. And what's the first thing they say after the mic drop? Isn't this our relative? That's all they have to say. They complain that he's related to them. Why should we listen to our relative? We don't want you as a prophet or a priest or a teacher. We just want you as a member of our tribe so that we can put tape over your mouth, Jesus. We already saw previously, and if you've been listening to the Bible's Literature podcast for many episodes, you know how long we went through the genealogy. And we were making the point then that the genealogy is talking about the chances that God gave humanity that were wasted. So he finally had to just do his own thing and say, this is my son. I'm not even going to pay attention to this. So the tension we have is that God says, this is my son. And the people say, this is Joseph's son. This tension is what we've had all throughout the book since chapter one. This is God's son. The text makes it as clear as it possibly can. But it doesn't try to give us rose-colored glasses. It shows the weight of history against this belief. Generations since Adam, remember Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He doesn't just go back to Abraham like Matthew does. Since the beginning of time, we have history saying, isn't this Joseph's son? This is one of the beliefs that we have to assimilate to our own, that this historical, genealogical fact does not determine what Jesus does or who he is or what tribe he belongs to or what family he belongs to. He belongs to God because God said, this is my son. And when the people say, is not this Joseph's son, at best, they don't understand. Because Luke already told us, no, he's not Joseph's son. We know that from early on in chapters one and two, when we learn about how Jesus is actually born and Joseph's non-participation in that action. And the genealogy that ends in Joseph. It ends in Joseph. So the people are not understanding. And, you know, since we talked about this ad nauseum in Matthew, I don't need to talk about how when all bear witness and wonder, ethavmazon, we don't have to be surprised that what they have to say next is suspect. Because when the people are amazed, they get very emotional and they stop paying attention to the things that are most important. This is why Jesus now has to start his lesson. He read the scripture and they got amazed at his words and then started talking about his genealogy. And Jesus has to say, no, 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 actually, it's not about me. It's about the words. Let's go back to the words now. And so Jesus is going to talk about the words he read as opposed to the mouth that the words came out of. And here's the bitter pill for Jesus and frankly for any teacher who is put in position in the synagogue by 
the one God, Elohim. The people will say, aren't you just this punk? Who do you think you are? And Elohim will say, he's the one I put there. But the same Elohim will say, and I'm going to crush him. So that's the difficult part of Jesus's role in the story. He was put there by the one who holds the Shebet. He is rejected by those he was sent to teach. And then he will be crushed by the will of the one who holds the Shebet. And he was put in this situation in the synagogue, not by his will. He has no agency. Remember the previous verses. The last person you want to be in this situation is Jesus. That is the hidah of the situation. It's the riddle. You have to hear Scripture according to Scripture. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. The power of these words is not that they're an adage that you quote against your relative who's a priest. Believe me, when or if you do that, you are under judgment. And every single letter in the text of the gospel will be held against you on that day. Do not quote this verse against your relative who is a priest or a pastor. Do not. I will pray for you on that day if you've ever done it or dare to do it. Because this is a judgment against the sons of Israel. God went first to the house of Israel to gather the lost sheep. God sent Jesus to the synagogue once again to offer them his instruction, not exclusively, but to honor them, to honor them first. And this is how they respond? And you would dare use the same words when the same consolation and grace is offered you? Do not play games. Do not play games, which is what they're doing here. The text is telling you blood is irrelevant. As you just said, Richard. And now you're going to hide behind blood to avoid the gift? There's something I could say in Arabic that I'm not going to say, Rich. There is this jealousy. You did this in Capernaum. Now do it for us in your country, right? Because this is the place where he was born. So the reference is to Joseph's son. So that's his genealogy. And then it's to Nazareth, the place where he was fed, his carnal home. On the one hand, there's this kind of ownership. You did it for them. Now you need to do for us. But you need to do it for us because we're yours and you are ours. They don't say it. Jesus says, this is what you're going to say. We don't get to hear what's in their heads. Jesus says, this is what you're doing here. Physician, heal yourself. What does that mean? If you're so smart, do it for yourself. They're saying, is not this Joseph's son and their amazement not listening to the words? Jesus interprets this as, you want me to do this for myself? You want me to do this for you? Because I belong to you. This is your thinking. And he says, 
No prophet is honored because here's the question. Why do you honor a prophet? You honor a prophet because of his words. The prophet's got nothing else. So no prophet is accepted in his own country. They're not going to accept a prophet because they don't want to accept the words. They want to accept this dude who sounds nice, who's from here, who's one of ours, but we don't want to hear what he says. We don't want to listen to what he says. We don't want to hear this is fulfilled in our sight. This isn't being fulfilled in our sight. We know this guy. He grew up just down the street. There's his relatives right down the street. Like, we know all of them. He's just a guy, and we own him. So he's not going to say anything we disapprove of, because he's ours. Jesus is really having to push against this ownership of the tribe. The tribe is wonderful in the way that it takes care of its own, but it's wicked in that it owns the ones who are their own. This is what Jesus is fighting against because he says, I only belong to the one who declared me as his son, who is the one who gave these words to Isaiah, which I read today in your hearing. This is the one I belong to. I belong to these words. These words don't belong to me. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Powerful example from First Kings that Jesus brings forward. In both cases, the widow and Naaman the Aramean. In both examples, we are talking about generosity and grace towards the outsider. The widow in Sarepta or Sarapath near Sidon is a woman living in Canaanite territory, and the prophet gives her food. And when her son dies, Richard, he raises her. So we're talking not just about nourishment and sustenance, but progeny. This is how the Lord, through Elijah, whose name means the Lord is my God, this is how the Lord deals with the outsider from here in Luke, his base of operations, which is a Jewish domain in the village of consolation and grace. And the same is true with this character, Naaman, whose name in Hebrew means grace, kindness. And anyone who speaks Arabic would recognize it immediately, Naamet. I'm going to keep stressing the Arabic cognate until all of those who speak Arabic stop bragging to me about the Septuagint. Stop it. If you speak Arabic, you should be studying Hebrew with Dr. Benton. Learn the Semitic. It's the same language. It's not even a stretch what I'm saying. If you know Arabic, it's a gift from the Almighty. The Father is the Dabat al-Kul. Jesus is sitting at his right hand, and he speaks Semitic. Why are we talking about Greek? And when you hear the Greek, you should hear it in Semitic. 
Come visit me at St. Elizabeth. We will have Turkish coffee and smoke shisha and study Semitic so that we can hear what God is saying, not what Constantine is saying. It is mercy, consolation, and grace toward the outsider. In other words, if my own relatives don't want it, the text of Luke is saying, then we're going to repeat what was taught in the text of First Kings. We're going to take it to the outsiders, to the enemies. It's so beautiful, Rich. And taking it one step further, the people are complaining, you did this in Capernaum, you should do it for us. And what does he come back with? He's like, Elijah could have fed a lot of widows in the land. He didn't feed any in the land. He only offered it to this Gentile woman. And Elisha could have healed any number of lepers in the land among the children of Israel. But he didn't even try. The only one he offered it to was a Gentile, and a Gentile king for that matter. This wasn't even offered to the insider. How does that chap your hide? Yeah, I did it to Capernaum. I'm just not going to do it. Now, you and I were going through this whole discussion. What exactly did he do in Capernaum? We can't find any reference to this. Maybe we don't need to know. All we need to know is that the cool thing that they thought they deserved in Nazareth, because it was done in Capernaum, he's like, you guys want me to do it, and I'm just not going to do it. Elijah didn't come back to the land and start healing widows. No, just the one up in Sidon, land of the Philistines, Phoenicians, up north in Aramean territory. Healed that king, not some leper in the land. Didn't even offer it to the people. And this is to show you that Elijah and Elisha do not belong to the people. The people do not deserve Elijah and Elisha or their words. It's a gift to whoever receives it. That's the nature of grace. Rich, it struck me, this word leprous in Hebrew, again, whenever I bring up the Hebrew, just to explain methodology to our listeners, when you're hearing the New Testament Greek, you can look at the alignment, the corresponding word in the Septuagint, and then see how it aligns to the original consonantal Hebrew. The word sara in Hebrew, to become leprous, has a cognate in the Arabic, sara, which means to throw down, bring to the ground, and humiliate. And when you look at how this appears in the Greek text of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, and Mark chapter 1, verse 40, and here in Luke 4.27, it appears obviously elsewhere, you realize that the implication in the Semitic, I mean, you can pick this up from the context, obviously, Rich, but it's more powerful when you look at the Semitic cognate, is humiliation, being brought to the ground, submission. So when you think about this in the context of the narrative, not just in terms of, quote, the meaning of words, there are no meaning of words. You have to look at how the term functions in the story. This instruction, this grace, this consolation, which Israel refused, and that Jesus is now taking outward, which is a repetition of what happened in First Kings, is being taken not just to the enemy, 
but to those who were put down, brought to the ground, and humiliated. And that's why we cannot allow, we must not allow, the enemy to take the words of God prisoner in this age. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.